it, our brains process this basically information, music in front of us at different rates, at different speeds. So if we go faster than our processor works, it doesn't really accomplish anything. You're actually kind of practicing mistakes instead of, so slow down, slow down, slow down. I don't even care how slow it is. Go the speed that your brain can look at everything, rhythms, uh, uh, articulations, uh, accidentals, whatever. Go the speed your brain can handle it. And then rap slowly, you, you increase that speed. That to me is more beneficial than doing something over and over and over again, trying to get it right. You're kind of practicing it wrong. So you're reinforcing wrong instead of right. So that's the practice room technique I use personally, and I recommend for students to do too. This episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Gurus Hang Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is Charlie Bertini. Charlie, well, he's a man of many talents. Charlie started his professional playing career while still in the ninth grade when he formed his own dance band in upstate New York. Charlie went on to build his impressive chops playing trumpet for the Clyde Beatty Cole Brothers Circus. Charlie's a top caliber performer, a passionate educator, record producer, concert promoter, and the founder of the Apple Jazz record label. And he shows no signs of slowing down. So, pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin! All right, and it is time for yet another phenomenal Trumpet Gurus Hang. And uh, this time, I am joined uh, from all the way down in uh, sunny Florida, Mr. Uh, Charlie Bertini. So uh, welcome to The Hang, my friend. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, man. It is uh, great to finally meet you. I've heard so many things about you um, from our, our mutual friend, uh, Tyler Yeager. And uh, actually, I, I kind of hate using that that term friend because uh, he's got really bad taste in, in the people he hangs out with. So <laughs> I love Tyler. Great, He's such a great guy uh, and such a phenomenal player. Uh, so anyone that he says, uh, I need to talk to, I need to talk to. So- uh, oh, That's great, I appreciate that. Uh, Tyler to me is, um, there, there's, a, there's a whole sort of, uh, a list or army of young trumpet players that in my estimation are the future of trumpet. Um, and Tyler's one of those guys that some these are, and I don't mean just guys, cause there's a, uh, uh, Kellen Hannes and, uh, there are, are, are some other uh, young folks that are just uh, amazing trumpet players who have done all the, homework and research uh, a lot of it's listening but then of course practicing and so um they want to know everything about trumpet they want to know the history they want to know the styles they want to know the approach and um uh, tyler's one of those guys he's he's uh, done his homework basically and then he puts in the time to practice and be the kind of trumpet player that uh, can handle different styles and different tasks i think that's really important going forward yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, even for even for us old dogs, uh, you know, there there's uh, 
there's the time you spend in your practice room, which absolutely is crucial. I mean, you you, you got to shed, you got to put in the work, mm-hmm. but it's the I think what sometimes sets sets players apart is uh, the academic research that they do into their playing. And by that, I don't mean necessarily going to school, uh, but you know, diving into the history, diving into uh, you know the all the influences that a player has, and and really doing the research and getting uh, for like we're getting in the head of of uh, the past generations. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's that's kind of what sets people apart when when they have that understanding of what came before do the work right now and then use their creativity to create a, a new, you know, a new sound to create, become a new voice. So uh, like, because you do, you do a lot of teaching. So I mean, when you think about uh, like this younger generation and, and you have these people like these, the, the Tylers of the world who are uh, inspired to, to uh, move the trumpet world a little bit forward. Uh, you know, what are some of the things that, that you, when you're looking at a student, you go, man, th- this is, this is the spark. This is, this is the person who, who's got, got the juice to, to do something different. I mean, what, what are the kind of the things that stand out in your mind? You know, I think those characteristics you're talking about, they're ancient. I mean, they, we all know when we hear somebody that's got it or see somebody that's got it, even if, if talking of, about athletes, you know, uh, you see some young tennis player or a young college football player. You say, oh, boy, that person's going to be amazing because right now they're 21, 22 years old. So what's in their future? But you have to have the the talent to begin with in whatever it is you're doing. And uh and the drive. And if you have those two things, then the, the kind of the world is your oyster if you put in the time. And just like athletics with music, it's it's the same thing. There's no shortcut. You can't cram for a solo. Uh, you, you've got to uh, be re- ready, willing and able to do all the work. So I, I think we all recognize that in a young person when we hear it or see it. And so um, then it's a matter of that person getting the right instruction and influence to to pursue their goal. A lot of it's about efficiency, like how quickly can I attain this? Well, if you don't have any direction from a good teacher or group of teachers or influencing, uh, then it's not going to happen. And so you really need that going forward. And the 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 trumpet players that I know that have excelled, they're hungry. They're hungry for it. And the problem is, can they get that from their band director or their college professor? If they can't, then they have to find other avenues and other ways to learn what it, whatever it is they want to learn. As a teacher, my, my goal is always to inspire. I mean, I could talk about trumpet to a young player for you know a month and never say the same thing twice but that's not the gig the gig is to take that person what do you want to do who do you want to sound like who are your influences and what are you going to do with that what's your goal and then inspire them to pursue that but they still have to do the work you can have the greatest teacher in the world and still be a lousy trumpet player well i study with you know Charlie Bertini, Bobby Shue, Wayne Bergeron, Alan Vizzuti, and not be that good. It's not about who you study with. It's about what you do with what those those uh, teachers give you. Yeah, absolutely, man. I'm with you 100% on that. And yeah, you know, one one of the things that that uh, you know, 
you were as you're talking about like having uh direction and things like that and and that there are no shortcuts i'm a firm believer of that that uh I don't think that there's shortcuts. And I always try to tell people, yeah, I, I'm, I can't give you a shortcut, but what I can do is I can help you to avoid detours. And that's exactly. Yeah. So the, the shortest point, you know, the shortest distance between those two points, um, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, it's easy for us to get distracted. It's easy for us to get pulled uh, in different directions and, and having clarity, I think is such an important uh, ingredient in developing yourself in whatever whatever endeavor it is, uh, you know, being clear on what your objectives are, uh, but then also having the flexibility to change as as life you know throws curveballs at you. But you know, when when you're looking at uh, you know the the process of of improving, I think one of the things that that's kind of uh, missing for many young kids are, are these opportunities. And, uh, you know, we're, we're definitely both, uh, older heads, you know, and, you know, I, I, I grew up, uh, in the, the sixties and seventies and, and, uh, you know, that was still a point where there were, um, there are plenty of big bands, you know, they're touring big bands, right. Uh, and Woody and, and Buddy and, and, you know, all those guys were, were still out on the road. Uh, so there was, there was a career path there. If you wanted to do that, uh, you know, and you know, you're, and this is, I want to get into some of your history on this. Uh, there, there were circuses, there were, you know, touring theater acts and things like that. There were all kinds of opportunities for a brass player and a trumpet player specifically to be able to do. And, you know, a lot of those opportunities, you know, kind of dried up for a while. So, um, you know, that you know, a lot of kids don't get that opportunity to, to cut their teeth uh, and to to work with older, more seasoned musicians. Yeah, that's uh, a key point, Jose. What you just said to work with the older musicians because it doesn't matter how ambitious you are and how many opportunities are out there. Like you're saying, when when the the bands were traveling, all the road bands, and if you got a gig on one of those bands out of college or whatever, you learn from those older guys. You might be talented, but you don't know anything yet, and you have to sit in a section with older cats that are going, "What are you doing?" Why are you doing that? You know, or just maybe not even that critical, but just hearing them play going, oh man, I'm going to approach this the way so-and-so did, you know, and those are the opportunities that are gone. There's still opportunities. They've changed, but not those, not to sit in a section with older players to learn from how they phrase, how they breathe, how they sound, how they deal with uh adversity how they deal with bad chop days and so on and so forth and still pull it off that's where that's where those those are the opportunities that are missing now i think there's opportunities but not like those yeah yeah still cruise ship bands and there's there's still touring broadway shows and stuff although not like you said not like there used to be but there are opportunities out there yeah yeah it's it's just finding the right ones and and taking advantage of them um, but yeah, but, and I want to talk about the, the circus thing because, uh, as I, I had mentioned to you, uh, before we, we started the actual hang, you know, I, I spent, I spent a few summers, uh, when I was in college doing, during circus gigs, there is something about those jobs that, yeah, it's sink or swim. If, if no one's ever had the opportunity to do a circus <laughs> job, they are sink or swim. And I learned some of the best lessons in my playing career, 
doing those kind of gigs and working with with guys that it, that had uh, you know one of the guys I worked with was a drummer who had worked with Ringling for a number of years and uh, you know people that that work with some of the other shows. Um, so you know what what are some of the things that, that you learned out of out of the circus uh, the circus life? <laughs> that's like this is, yeah that's a long conversation but I will say this um, uh, just a little bit of history Jose is it. When I was in uh, ninth grade, I started a little, for lack of a better word, a little dance band. It was really a pep band because our high school band played for the high school football games, which were on, uh, I don't know, uh, Friday nights or Saturday nights or something, Friday nights. But then the junior varsity football uh, team uh, played on Saturdays during the day. And there was no band, you know, when they'd score a touchdown, there was some parents in the audience, but you know, the big games were Friday nights and the whole band was this rah, rah thing. So we started a pep band uh, to play for the JV games and, and cheer them on and stuff. So then we got some, some dance charts and stuff, Glenn Osser arrangements and so on. And then we started playing for like ice cream socials and church functions and things like that, PTA meetings. And we would get, it was like an eight or nine piece band and we'd get $25, not a piece. The whole band got $25. And I, you know, I was in ninth grade, 10th grade. I couldn't believe people would give me money to play the trumpet. And so um, we, we were, and we'd use, we didn't split the money. We'd buy more arrangements with the money. So we had a bigger library. Well, one of the, this was in New York state. And one of the guys was a bass player, electric bass, which was new back then, because this is the early 60s. So uh, he played uh, Fender bass, and he was in a local dance band. So, And they were in the Union, because it's a New York State, Union State. So he was in high school with us, but he was our bass player. And the Union came to us, kids, and said, uh, you guys uh, can't use this guy uh, because he's in the union and you're non-union. So uh, we said, well, well, what if we pay him union scale? And they said, well, okay. So that whole $25 went to him. I think a three hour casual back then was like $19 or something. So we did that for a while and then, and we were getting busier and finally the union said, no, you guys got to join the union or get a, a non-union bass player. So we joined the union as I think I joined the union in 1966. And now we're all getting $19 a piece for gigs. So that was a cool thing. The reason for that story is once I was in the musicians union, I started getting the international musician back then was a newspaper and it was monthly. So in, in there were ads for musicians wanted to travel or also would need a, a second trumpet player for the Navy band in Atlanta, Georgia or whatever, you know? And so, um, all those ads were in there, symphony ads and stuff. There was an ad for the circus, musicians to travel with the world's largest circus, which was the Clyde Beatty Cole Brothers Circus under canvas, not Ringling, which was in buildings. So I answered that ad and I was like first chair in high school band and everything else. And I answered the ad. I was so naive, Jose. I got hired as second trumpet in this, in this band. And I had to report, you know, in a few months. And um, I wanted to, I thought, second trumpet? I'm going to challenge the first trumpet player for his seat. <laughs> so, so when I got there and we started, we had one night rehearsal and then we opened the next day. And it was a three show day the next day. And my lips were cut top and bottom because we just never stopped playing. 
And I thought so much for challenging the guy. I'm trying to not bleed, you know, while I was playing. And like you said, it was sink or swim. And I thought I am, I am going to figure this out. I am not going to fail. I am not going to, you know, call my parents and can you come and pick me up? Or, you know, I blew my chops out the first week. No way. And so uh, I learned then how to deal with in, endurance. And again, I didn't have any teachers. I didn't have a Bobby shoe to tell me about the right way to breathe. I didn't have, I didn't, all I did was put ice pack on my chops between shows and kept going. And after about a month, uh, I had all the second trumpet chops I needed. I could play two hours. We called it suicide second. And um, I could play for two hours nonstop, go get something to eat and do it again. We did two shows a day, seven days a week, uh, three shows on Saturdays and no days off for nine months. So if you think, oh, I got to rest my chops and stuff, which I highly recommend doing resting your chops, but there was no chance I could do that. So how do we figure this out? How do you play four solid hours a day, seven days a week for nine months? No matter what. Oh, I got a callus. Oh, I got this. I got a cold sore. Oh, I got the flu. Uh, there, were, you, there was no subs. There was no days off. There, if you have the flu, you, you know, throw up and go on Van Sand and play. You know, it, it was, like you said, sink or swim. There's no other uh, <laughs> word for it. There were no gray areas. Yeah. Well, it, it definitely is trial by fire. And, and for people who, who have, you know, like for, for the younger generation, those of you who, who are uh, in the audience who have, have never uh, been at a circus where they have live musicians. Oh my God. Yeah. You know, those two hour hits and it's not just, it's not playing you know, easy, easy peasy stuff. <laughs> well, you're, you're not sitting there while the tenor player takes a chorus. You know, well, it's band, it's brass band music constantly. Yeah. It, 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 as a matter of fact, even the management of our circus and then also Ringling, they didn't like paying guys. And then they'd look over and see you not playing. They were saying, I'm paying you. I want everybody playing all the time. What kind of arrangement is this? You know, get some arrangements where everybody plays. I'm paying them. So that was that was the deal. That said, um, the the exposure I had to different styles of music, because, you know, the circus has acts from all over the world. So we'd get, uh, you know, a Hungarian teeterboard act that might be nine minutes long with with uh, measures that phrases that aren't what we normally consider a phrase it might be 11 bar phrase or something. And you're playing, and you know, and it just kind of goes on and on and on. But whoever did the hand manuscript back then, no finale, none of that stuff. Whoever did the hand manuscript put the the stems on the wrong side of the black notes. So it's almost like you know when you see stuff now on your phone, right. it looks backwards. There's somebody's T-shirts printed backwards. Well, this is how these notes look. So your brain isn't trained to, to decipher that, and so you had to kind of just switch over and say, "Well, this is how it is. I've got to read it." So we'd get stuff like that. We'd get stuff that was horrible, horribly arranged, or was arranged for something besides our eight-piece band, 
And we'd have to figure out, oh, well, well there's alto sax parts missing. All right, so somebody has to scribble them out because we didn't have any saxes on the, uh, the Clyde Beatty service. So yeah, the, these are exposures that you, you couldn't get if you went to college or, or anything, because w why? <laughs> why would you get that? You, if you went to college, you might be learning the music of Count Basie versus Stan Kenton versus uh, Benny Goodman. Uh, you know, there's different styles and different ways to approach those things, but you would never have this. Because once again, why? You'd never be exposed to that. Why would you get educated about it? So you yeah. get that education on the road. Yeah. And like you said, that, that's the key word is the education. Uh, there is that exposure to all those styles. Uh, that's, that's definitely, that's a musical education. But I think um, you know, as you're talking about having to figure out how to survive in that environment, how to deal with, uh, you know, when you're on a gig, how do you deal with chop problems? How do you deal with, uh, you know, the less than desirable acoustical settings? Uh, so you, you, you have to learn this kind of versatility. Um, so like what, if you had to like kind of capsulate it, I mean, what, what, what do you think is like in terms of a, as a player, what do you think the biggest impact uh, that, those years in the circus had on you in your development? That's a good question. The, the biggest impact it had on me, I think, was that um, when you think you're out of chops, maybe you aren't. Because uh, mentally, when we envision something or realize something, that kind of becomes the reality. If you think you're going to fail, you're probably going to fail, you know. Um, uh, so I learned like, no, just keep playing. You've got the chops to do it. Your body knows what to do. Your muscles know what to do. Okay. My jaw's tired. My abdomen's tired. My lips are swollen. Okay. But you can keep playing. It might not be the optimum situation, but you can do it. That's one thing. The other thing that the circus did for me, it pretty much made me fearless. So when somebody's handing out charts, a new new arrangement and stuff like that, or you're in a recording studio, you're playing stuff you've got to play basically perfect and you've never seen it before and stuff, um, you could start letting that take you over. Oh, I haven't had a chance to look at this. I haven't seen. No, no, just play it. You've been trained. You're a musician. It's math. There's, you know, intervals and time you have to count. There's uh, things like that. But if you're if you're fearless about it you can just go in and let let's let's get it give me this thing let's go at it so that kind of confidence even if you're not that confident but having that confidence from having done so many things i think that's really helpful too yeah i mean fear and you know second guessing ourselves that is so dangerous you know and you, and you and it's so easy to get caught in that downward spiral you know, mm -hmm. like if you if you chip a note or something like that, and then you start ruminating on it and you start worrying and then, man, the performances go way south. <laughs> so. mm -hmm. yeah, I, I frequently tell students, keep your brain moving forward. Just keep moving forward. And I give an example. We, I, we actually we actually do this uh, in my studio. Um, but then I say, well, when you're walking down the hall and you scuff your toe or something like you basically you, you trip not you don't fall down but you you know you stumble and then you turn around and look at 
what? There's no brick there. There's no log in them. Why are you turning around and looking? You just tripped over your sneakers. You, you know, now you're turning around and looking and you're still moving forward. What's going to happen? You're going to run into a locker or somebody else or a post or something because you're moving forward and looking back at basically your mistake. So we don't look back. Now, when you get to where you're going musically, you can look back. Well, what happened to that letter C down here? Man, I, I trashed this thing. Let me think. Oh, I see those triplets are uh, miscounted, whatever. You know, look back later, but not what happens. Keep moving forward because, like you said, it's a downward spiral once you get caught up in that. Oh, I made a mistake. Let me look at it. It's like, no, not what? now. And, and that, that's kind of an interesting thing because there's like this di this dichotomy that exists because, you know, when you're in the practice room, okay, and or you're in your lesson or whatever, um, and you make a mistake, that's when it's the, okay, let's stop, let's figure out what happened, let's fix it, now let's move forward. Mm -hmm. It's different than on a gig because on a gig, you, you cannot do that. There is no time or place for that. So it's like getting the difference between the practice room or lesson mindset and the onstage mindset. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's hard sometimes for people to understand that there are two different approaches. Because if, if like if you're if you're practicing and, and you never and and you just continue to and sometimes you need to do that, just continue to play through mistakes because you figure out how to do that. But uh, if you never go back to try and correct things, then you're not going to make progress. But that's, you know, that's practice room. Practice room and stage are two different things. Yeah, totally. Uh, um, so, of course, I'm sure some of the folks you've interviewed have talked about slow practice, which I think is important because our brains process this basically information, music in front of us at different rates, at different speeds. So if we go faster than our processor works, it doesn't really accomplish anything. You're actually kind of practicing mistakes instead of, so slow down, slow down, slow down. I don't even care how slow it is. Go the speed that your brain can look at everything, rhythms, uh, uh, articulations, uh, accidentals, whatever. Go the speed your brain can handle it. And then wrap slowly, you, you increase that speed. That to me is more beneficial than doing something over and over and over again, trying to get it right. You're kind of practicing it wrong. So you're reinforcing wrong instead of right. So that's the practice room technique I use personally, and I recommend for students to do too. Um, then when you're sitting in band and they're doing it at the real tempo and you get lost, the band doesn't stop because you got lost. Like you said, in performance, you, you know, you got to keep going. So there's two disciplines there and, um, and they're both mental disciplines. And I think we spend a lot of time practicing, you know, our chops, our, our tongue, tonguing and our fingers and uh, technique and everything else. But we don't practice the discipline that the brain needs to keep moving forward. So when, when the brain stops, everything stops. So you're playing along, playing along, and suddenly it's some, some rhythm throws you off. You've just stopped, and it's really hard to get back in the game. And this is another example I use, and we can, we, every person I tell this to, I can tell this to a sixth grader uh, or a 70-year-old like me, and we all start laughing. So, okay, you're studying for your science exam tomorrow. 
let's say your 11th grade science exam tomorrow and um chapter six the whole exam is going to be on chapter six you're tired it's 9 30 at night but you man i gotta study for this test so you read a whole page of chapter six and you get to the bottom of the page and you go oh crap I just read the whole page and I don't remember one thing on that page. And I know that's going to be on the test tomorrow. So will you, you go back and you read that one page again, every single word, phrase, sentence, because you've got to remember this information and the brain can do it. It's tired, but it can do it because why we just made it go back and do it right. And that's the discipline that uh, happens in music too when we're reading 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 along and then suddenly your brain fails and the music stops you just stop because you can't play anymore um so i try to remind us all that you know the brain needs as much work as the chops and the tongue and so on and so forth and the fingers the brain needs those disciplines too and sometimes we just the brain fails and we go, oh, okay, I, I'm going to go get a cup of coffee. And I'll practice more later. No, no, no. <laughs> Make it go forward now because the next time you play, you'll be able to read longer. But if you just stop when it's the brain's tired, then it's not going any farther. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a, a, a concept um, typically people call flow in the zone, you know, at the peak performance states. Um, but uh, there's a lot of research that shows that that when you're, you know, obviously when you're in that state, that's when everything is kind of coming together. You know, that's mm -hmm. when time stops and and you're just <laughs> engrossed. You're one with the music or one with the, you know, whatever it is you're doing. But um, the research is showing that the, there's something called a challenge skill sweet spot, which is where you want to be. You don't want to be, you don't want what you're doing to be too easy because then you get bored. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't want it to be too challenging because then you get frustrated and, and anxious. So uh, they say that where you want to be is like 4% beyond your current skill capabilities. So I'm writing this down because this is fascinating. <laughs> Not a problem. Um, so that, you know, when, when you're just at that spot, that's just a little bit beyond what you're comfortable with, then your mind is forced to focus. You are forced to be in that present moment. You can't be thinking about the past or the future. It's just like, I got to do this because it's just that far out of reach. So, um, yeah, yeah. Like you're, you're saying that, that idea of uh, that has to be trained. It's not that, you know, certainly some of us can do it, uh, more innately because of other things we've done in our lives. But when you're in the practice room or in the, in the, in the studio, the, your, your trumpet studio, uh, if you're a teacher, I think it's really important that you help your students to understand that there is this very specific kind of mental strategy that you need to develop if you want to maximize your, your abilities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's not, doesn't have to be complicated. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. 
your brain gets tired just like anything else gets tired. If you've ever been in a, in a, in a weight room or a gym and you're trying to do 10 reps and you get to eight and you can barely lift the bar at eight, it's like the, the coach goes, no, no, two more, two more, give me two more. That's when you're building muscle. You didn't build muscle one through eight. Right. You're going to build it on nine to 10. Okay. If we stop practicing when the, the brain starts failing us, that's as far as your brain's going to go, whatever that is. My brain's good for 47 minutes and then it gets tired. Okay. Well, well I want 52 minutes, you know, I want 55 minutes, but we get that by those, that little extra stuff, just like we read chapter six, a little again, thinking really hard. So read your exercise again. And I tell us, don't make any mistakes. Okay. Your brain's tired. I want you to read that Arvin's again, slow down. Don't make any mistakes. It's just math. You know, there's no rhythms there. You don't know. There's no fingerings there. You don't know yet. You just stopped all over it. So go back and do it again. And don't make any mistakes. And this could be, you know, 55 minutes into a 60-minute lesson. And then the, the player will do it perfect. See, you can do it, but you may, had to make the brain go to work. You know, our brain's busy making new cells and, and <laughs> digesting our breakfast and uh, growing your fingernails and your hair. And, and you're going, oh, I, I want to read this 5-4 thing in six flats again. The brain's going, what? I'm not doing that. I got work to do here. So we this is where this is where that training, I think, is really important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when it when it comes to the way that you know, because the the brain stuff, that's that's like that's my jam. I love talking about that stuff. But, um, you know, it's that combination of uh, you know, doing, doing the work, you know, front loading. So that's what you're doing in the practice room. You, you're, you know, when you're doing your Arvins, when you're doing your Clarks, when you're playing your scales, all that sort of stuff, that's the, the that's setting the foundation. Um, and then it's, how do you make those connections? Uh, you know, what I tell uh, my, like what I, I taught martial arts for professionally for, you know, almost 30 years. Uh, I would always tell my students, there's nothing that I'm going to show you that you don't are, you don't, already know how to do at an extremely high level. Mm -hmm. you look at me like, well, I've never studied martial arts before. I'm like, no, it, it's just your body moving. There's nothing that I'm, I'm going to show you that is unusual to your body. What's unusual is the coordinations, mm -hmm. you know, how you put the things together, how you combine them. But the, the mechanics, eh, you're already a master of this. Now we just have to figure out how to, to create these, these combinations of movements uh, that you maybe have not been familiar with. And it's the same thing with, with, you know, like with playing trumpet, you know, it's like, like you were saying, unless you're doing, you know, playing those Hungarian tunes or an Indian <laughs> or something like that. Right. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. already, you already know all the rhythms. You already know all the notes, you know what the sounds are. Mm -hmm. uh, you may not have seen them in this, this particular combination. Right. Correct. Yeah. You mm -hmm. already know everything. So, you know, sometimes our brain gets in the way and it's kind of like, oh, crap, this is all new. I'm, you know, how am I going to do this? So it's like, no, it's not all new. It's all old. It's, just it's all old. Yeah. 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 So yeah. Th those are the kind of things I like. I love talking about. But but definitely like when you're talking about like, you know, seeing something new and like having to read a chart and things like that, because I know you do a lot of work uh, in uh, doing producing and recording for uh, for people. Um 
And I think in the, in the studio, that's always kind of a scary thing when you're, you're kind of in this new environment, maybe you have a chart thrown at, thrown at you. Uh, you know, how, how do you help as a producer? How do you help uh, an artist get past some of these mental blocks that, you know, are, are standing in the way between them doing a mediocre at best performance and really drawing out uh, their best possible version of themselves? Uh, another good question. So the, the, the producing that I do is usually with really high quality, talented artists. So my role as producer in that, in that regard is to get them to give their best performance. I'm not recording, you know, people who've never been in the studio before for the most part, but a lot of times they're re recording artists who are intimidated by being in a studio. It's a totally sterile environment. It's not comfortable. The clock's ticking. Uh, somebody's paying for this studio time at however much per hour. So a lot of artists will get nervous because, uh, you know, they don't want to, spend more of their money if they're the artist paying for it or more of the, the labels money or whatever. So um, my job as producer is to relate to those people as a musician, like I was sitting there next to them. We've all been there. Like you said, none of this is new, but that whole intimidation of being in the studio and I only paid for three hours and I got to get these, this many songs done and everything that creates a lot of stress. So a lot of it's about reducing stress, having a good time, making as much music as possible, uh, and, and getting the best performance out of those folks. Sometimes it'll be, um, well, nowadays, when we were using a two-inch tape at, at the uh, uh, 15 IPS inches per second, you could fit 16 minutes on a two-inch tape. That meant you had to be very, and, and the tape back then, it could have been anywhere from one twenty-five to one hundred eighty dollars a reel. Well, if you can fit sixteen minutes on it, and you want to record a one-hour album, and you're going to do multiple takes, this is just adding up, adding up. All of a sudden, you know, you've got a thousand dollars just in tape. Well, we don't have that anymore. It's digital. You can do as many takes as you want, so on and so forth. So that takes some of the stress out of it, um, but. Performing to our best ability, it really comes from relaxation and confidence. So those are the goals, because with relaxation and confidence, then we're going to get the product that that group of musicians can offer when they're having fun, when they're having a good time, when they feel comfortable. And so that's more of it than anything else, because we can do multiple takes now. We can comp them so you can pick the best this. Well, the coda was great on the first take, but on the second take, okay, well, let's, you know, cut and paste and do all that stuff. That's also important as a producer that somebody goes, oh, man, I really messed up this. Don't worry about it. Letter B was perfect on the, the other take. Yeah, well, I no, it's my job. You just keep playing. You're playing great. Just keep, keep doing that, you know. Um, the other thing is in the studio, and this is what's what's hard for me, especially when I'm playing lead trumpet in the studio, is I might have a really demanding thing and I played it great. And somebody else goes, oh, sorry, you know, second trombone or third trumpet or somebody. Oh, man, I tacked. I missed the key change or whatever. Then we got to do it again. Now I got to do that really difficult part again, because 
if we're recording a horn section, you can't just do one part at a time. So we have to do the whole thing again and I have to get it right again. And then somebody else messed up. I have to get it right again. Or maybe I do something wrong this time. Now I've had to do the same difficult thing six, seven, eight times when I did it right the first time. So that comes goes back to what you're talking about. Endurance, chops, the mental thing. Oh man, I don't know how much longer I can keep playing the shout chorus. You know, so uh, these are, you know, studio work is, is challenging, especially it really depends on the budget. You know, I have a book called Sessions with Sinatra. And uh, one of the things Sinatra would do, he'd have a huge orchestra in there and, uh, uh, you know, Capitol Studios. And he'd go in and let's say they were going to do four songs that day and he would start singing. And he had he wanted to sing with the, the band. He couldn't you know, didn't want to do it any other way. And of course, at some certain point in uh, history, you couldn't do it any other way. You had to do it with everybody else because there was like three track recording. So if he didn't feel good, he'd start singing and he would just go, you know what? I'm not, I'm not feeling it today, guys. Really? I'm really sorry. And he would send everybody home, pay them for the session, send everybody home and they would get rebooked again. And because he had to feel good to do it. Well, we don't have those budgets you know that he had but um uh that's nice when you do when when you can do something and say you know what let's uh let's go to lunch now come back and we'll get get the rest of it this afternoon um so it, it's each producing job that i do is unique it's almost like making a new dish hey charlie you're making dinner tonight okay w what do we got i've got chicken and i got this and I got some onions and I got this. Okay, I got to make dinner. All right, Charlie, you're making dinner tonight. Oh, what do we got? Well, the stove's broken, so you're going to grill. And all I've got is a uh, uh, pork tenderloin. Oh, okay. I mean, each time you do it, somebody goes, Wow, Charlie's a great cook. Or, man, don't get Charlie to produce your record. It'll be a mess, you know? So uh, it's really a lot of things. A, a, lot, a, a lot of it's just, uh, trusting the musicians and making them feel as comfortable as possible. Yeah. Well, yeah, what you said uh, is so interesting because, I mean, it ties into what we're talking about earlier about, you know, what you learned uh, in the circus about being fearless. Uh, that That's a big thing because, I mean, it, there's there are these mindsets. I mean, like uh, some people freak out on stage because everybody's looking at me. Mm -hmm. Some people freak out in the studio because, Oh crap! If I play this wrong, it is you know I gotta either we have to go back and do it again, or you know if it's if it's a live recording, then it's like oh crap, this is gonna be out there forever. Uh, so you you feel that pressure to get it right, and 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 there's a, it's a different kind of pressure. Um, so it, I think it's it's kind of a, a challenge uh, as as a budding musician uh, to develop those those mental tools to be able to go from uh the live setting you know what what's demanded in the live setting and what's demanded in the studio and how to make the best of it um but but there's also then the the i think that there there's a slightly different approach that you have to take in terms of of the way you play uh in the studio as opposed to the way you might be playing you can get away with playing a certain way on stage that you can't get away with, with playing in the studio. It's not the optimal thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I totally agree with that because, you know, uh, if you're on stage and you're a live setting, um, 
I mean, you might have a microphone, but still, uh, we, we don't know who's operating that microphone. So in the studio, though, your all your dynamic range from pianissimo to triple forte is within a space of, of you know, 12, 14 inches where your microphone is, unless they're doing a recording the whole section. But still, you don't have to play to the back of the auditorium. You just have to it, it put your dynamic range in that space. And that's a different mindset it's a different approach it's still trumpet playing and they still expect you to be the trumpet player they hired because of your sound or your approach or your leadership skills in a section or all the above but you can um uh, uh that that gets consolidated into a smaller space than you know a, a live stage show would be yeah well yeah i i'm a firm believer that um you know, to, to, to get the best out of yourself uh, requires you to learn as much as you can about your craft. And, uh, you know, as we were talking about earlier about, you know, learning history and things like that, but also, uh, you know, about the technical aspects of things, the it, beyond just the, the tucka, tucka, tucka stuff. But it's like, for me, one of the, some of the things that have helped me out tremendously as being a live performer was uh, getting to hang out with sound men and actually learning how to run a board, learning how to be front of house, learning how to be a monitor mixer, um, because it helped me A, to understand uh, what they're dealing with, uh, and then helped me to understand how to uh, make my performance mesh with what they need to do to make, because, you know, they're responsible for the whole band, not just for making me sound good, uh, which is an almost impossible thing. But, you know, and, and the same thing in the studio is like, I love to sit in, in the studio and talk to the, the, the engineer, to talk to the producer, talk, you know, talk to the, 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 the mastering engineer and things like that, to understand their processes so that it, I can do my best job to make their job easier. You know, so if we're both trying to make our jobs easier, then I think that's when we get the best, the, the, the best result. So, you know, when you're working with like your students, uh, do you ever do things with them to help them understand uh, how, how miking works, the principles of, you know, where, you know, how do you, how do you think about placement? What do you think about, uh, you know, what kind of microphone would you use a ribbon versus a, a condenser and, uh, you know, how, how to deal with different acoustical settings and treatments, uh, it, are those things that you get into with your students or, or is it something that, uh, you just let them figure out on their own? Uh, another good question, Jose. Um, I got into producing because of what you just said earlier about talking to the engineers and stuff. So I would be doing recording at like three recordings a week in the same studio, different engineers, different producers and stuff. And so I would go in and play and then uh, we'd listen to the playbacks and I might be very pleased with my sound. Three days later, same horn, same studio, maybe a different microphone, different staff. I'd play something and I'd go into the playbacks and it sounded, the trumpet sounded awful. I mean, awful. And I go, is that uh, the sound that the trumpet's going to be? Is it, you know, <laughs> oh, we're going to fix that later. You know, okay, none of my business, you know, and, and uh, I might say to the, your listeners, um, all the things you talked about, I'd go in to talk to the engineer and talk to the producer and talk to the manager. We don't get to do that most of the time. You should just go in there, play your instrument, 
say thank you and get the hell out and mind your own business. Okay. So anyway, now day three of the same week, I go in and uh, same thing, same studio, same trumpet, different sound. Once again, a third sound. So uh, I, that's when I started asking questions like you talked about, like, what, how could I be, especially if it's an engineer I know and trust. Okay. Well, when I was with you on Monday, it, the trumpet sounded great. And then I was here Wednesday and it sounded like, you know, a transistor radio and it's the same SSL console and stuff. Oh, well, they probably use a different mic. I go, it was a different mic. Yeah. And then I don't know how they had the mic preset. I go, what's a mic pre, you know? So I learned as I went along. And then if I was in a session where I felt I had the ability to do it again, you should just show up, shut up and play your part. But I could go, Hey, do you, uh, do you have a, do you, do you have a 421 uh, instead of this? Uh, you know, cause they, they might've used a SM57 Shure mic, which you use rock and roll on a stage. Right. But it's full of harmonic distortion. Oh, oh yeah. I said, well, you know, you might want to, if you have one and you could have your intern set it up, put it next to the other one. And then later you could AB them and see which one, you know, which sound you prefer. So I, I, I learned that way by experimentation, everything else. There's no like book you can read that tells you these things because a lot of it is your ability uh, to ha have a personality and to, to deal with other people as well. Or to tell a producer, oh, you know, I really like this Coles ribbon mic, man. Do you have one of those? Yeah, I got one. Hey, hey, Jesse, go set up a, a Coles ribbon mic for Charlie. You know, so these are things we you can't really teach. You have to know when to suggest and or when to shut up, and then you got to know what you're talking about, like you said. So, uh, so to answer your question about my students, when they say I have to make a recording to send it in for my audition, okay. So we'll, if we do it here, um, and it has to be video, I'll set up a, a man, man has it stand with their iPhone on the stand, and then I'll have them play a little bit, uh, maybe 10 feet from them, and we listen to sound. Just play four measures. All right, then I'll move the, the stand farther back and uh, try that and see how we like that sound. Again, this is the sound of their phone, my house, my room that we're recording this in. And so we, we do that because of the proximity effect, because of how far the microphone is from the source, which is our trumpet bell. So we find the sweet spot. Oh, that sounds like me right there. Okay, we're going to record right here, nine feet from where you're standing, and that's going to be your video because it can't be edited or anything else. So, But we want the best sound. We don't want it distorted because you did it three feet from your bell and stuff. So in those regards, we do that. If a student approaches me and says, which they do sometimes, oh, I want to buy a mic, which, what should I get? You know, so uh, I have recommendations for that too, which one of my favorite trumpet mics is a Shure SM7. It's the one you see on radios and stuff. Uh, I don't know what you're using there. I can't really see it, but you know, uh, uh, SM7 is great. When I record at home, I, I use that. I also have a, a, a USB mic too, but it doesn't sound as good as the SM7 with a Focusrite, uh, you know, converter. So um, it, it, everything depends on, you know, what you want to use. 
when I do play live, I've got a, a DPA a 4099 that clip on the clip is so tiny. It doesn't deaden the bell. Some of the other clamps clamp onto your bell. It's like, Oh, play a note and then clamp your fingers on the bell and see which sound you like better. You know, the, the clamp deadens the bell. I would I do want to say something else now that we're talking about that, um, about live stuff is that, um, you know, our bells not only disperse energy, but they collect energy as well. So if you're in a salsa band, a rock band, and uh, uh, if you just hold your bell while the monitors are really loud, the bass is too loud, uh, the bell is already alive. It's energized by all of the sound vibrations in the room and on the stage. And then we're going to put our mouthpiece in there and try to play a bunch of high C's in a row on a bell that's already alive from way too much information, you know, energy on stage, you're already at a huge disadvantage. I don't care if you've got great earbuds. I don't care if you've got a, one of those shields so you can hear yourself plexi thing. Um, the energy that your horn is already collecting you can't make that go away. So you're at a disadvantage trying to energize your bell from behind the horn. You're just energizing it with so much percentage past what's already happening. And I think a lot of us don't know that or don't think about it, that your rate of return is totally different on an environment where it's really loud on stage. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, I was I was just uh, having a, a discussion with uh, Brian Davis, a uh, great uh, oh, love his playing man, yeah, great players doing a lesson with with Brian, and and he said something to me that was like, oh, damn, I never thought about that, and he was talking about um, being playing in tune, and you know, like the difference between what you hear and what it gets out because of the uh the fact that like in my case i i also play with a clip on it in uh in live situations most of the time and say like, well so the first thing is that you know your sound doesn't fully develop until about six about six feet away from your bell correct mm -hmm. sound is still developing uh and then what you're getting through the monitors um has been eq'd because they're 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 notching things they're pulling out the frequencies that are most likely to cause feedback which tend to be either like the the super lows or they're going to be in the highs and right as a lead trumpet player right in that spot where i'm going to be cranking it out mm -hmm. so you're not really hearing your real sound. So what you're tuning to is not your actual sound and that's why sometimes you play a little flat i'm like oh, damn, that makes absolute sense now. But mm -hmm. those are the things that we don't think about. We just think, okay, mic in front, the mic is going to get exactly what I'm putting out, and that's it. No, it, everything gets it gets flavored and colored and shaded and, and manipulated. And you know, understanding how that works then gives us the best possible uh, options of how to to either mitigate those those negative things or how to maximize them, how to use them to our advantage. So, uh, you know, for for your from your perspective, I mean, what what do you prefer? Uh, are, are you I 
I mean, I know you love doing everything if it's if it's involving music, but do you prefer being, you know, on the stage? Do you prefer being on the studio? Uh, do you prefer being, you know, behind the console? I mean, what what what's bringing Charlie the most joy? Wow, uh, uh, that's tough. I think because they're all different. That's you know, uh, if you ask me, but what do I like, breakfast, lunch, or dinner better? That's that's one thing because I do all three in my kitchen. But these are totally different things. So um, when I I can just answer them individually. When I'm in the studio, uh, I'm I I like when the engineer and the producer. When I'm trumpet playing in the studio, I like when the engineer and producer know what they're doing, know what they're after, and they do it efficiently. The thing I dislike is when I we play something, and then they go, okay, just a second. Waiting, 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 waiting. Uh, okay, can we do that again? Okay, now, but it might be three minutes later. Now I'm not, my, there's blood isn't in my chops. I'm not warmed up. It's, it's like, what? You know, then they expect us to play perfectly again, like you're dropping the needle on a record. If they would just keep going, uh, you know, we might have more success and be more efficient. So um, so when everybody's efficient behind the glass, I love that. I love the studio for that. Let me do what I do and let's keep going. <laughs> you know, uh, don't don't stop seven minutes between you know, you guys trying to figure out this and that, you know, so that's important that so when we get results in the studio and the, the usually is with a horn section. So uh, when when things are going great, that's extremely rewarding. I did one session for for Disney and it was uh, um, a uh, it was the, the show was um, uh, the. The, uh, the Princess and the Frog, it was a film. And um, and then Disney did a, a cruise ship stage show with it. So they had already done the band recording and stuff, but they needed uh, the, the Dixieland stuff. And they needed, again, this is a good thing about doing your homework. So they really wanted the New Orleans Dixieland. If you know anything about Dixieland, it moved from New Orleans up to, up to St. Louis, then up to Chicago, and it changed jazz changed as it you know what there's different styles for each part of the river anyway this was the old new orleans two beat louis armstrong kind of thing so they hired uh, me a clarinet player and a trombone player and so in the booth was the 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 arranger the producer and the show director so the arranger totally cool the guy from la uh the producer Totally cool Disney guy who does these things all the time. But the show director, is this is the guy who's going to be on that cruise ship, and he's envisioning what this is going to sound like uh, on that stage when you're on that cruise and you go into the theater to see the Princess and the Frog show. So we have three different concepts here. And so each person offered, oh, no, it's got to be like this. The ranger, the ranger go, well, instead of that, try this. Okay. The Disney producer, great guy. So he was just trying to keep things moving along. But the show director, who didn't know anything about music, he just knew about visually what it's going to look like on stage. So anyway, the, and I'll tell you another funny story about that. But 
the it was so much fun. This thing was so much fun that the the after the session, I think it was a four hour session. After the session, the trombone player and a clarinet player and I, we just didn't want it to end. It's like, uh, let's go to lunch. So so we went out and we just hung out often. And the energy from that session was so powerful that we just didn't want it to end. No, we didn't go get drunk or anything, but we just wanted to hang out and talk and everything. But I'll tell you, as a trumpet player, you're going to love this. So uh, on the stage show, if, you, I've, if you've seen the film or somebody who's listening has seen the film, uh, Lewis is the big gator, the big swamp gator, you know, and he's obviously named Lewis for a reason. Anyway, um, he's this animatronic uh, guy with a costume on. So I think Lewis was like seven and a half feet tall on stage. And uh, he's got a trumpet he holds up to his, you know, mouth, but uh, it's not real trumpet. So, but he's bigger than life. So I'm playing the, this stuff and they go, the, the, the Disney guy was happy. The arranger was happy, but the show director is going, Hey, Charlie, can you make that? Like, and he doesn't know any of our terminology. Could you make it like, I don't know, louder or bigger? I'm already playing double forte. It was F's and G's, you know? So I go, I, I don't know. I mean, you can turn it up in the mix. I can't play a G any louder than I just played it, you know? And so, uh, but he was asking for what he wanted was this really over the top kind of character. But it had to be musically over the top because of what you're seeing on stage. So once I realized this, I started doing stuff that typically I hate when lead trumpet players do it or trumpet players, period, do it. I started playing greasy and, uh, I, you know, screaming up to notes and stuff, even though it didn't say that, you know, I mean, just, just, just over the top, the kind of stuff, if you were sitting next to somebody, you'd go, what the heck are you doing, man? That sounds like horrible, you know? So then at the, at the very end, which is the end of the show, I had to play this cadenza up to a G and he goes, <laughs> ready for this, Charlie, could you hang over the cutoff? I go, can I hang over? Yeah, I don't like guys that hang over, you know, but so I said, but, but sure, of course, I'll do that. So I hung over and he goes, yeah, could, could you do it longer? Like hang over farther? Okay, so I did it farther and he goes, could you do like a little shake or something on the end when, when you hang over? I mean, all this stuff that makes you into a jerk lead trumpet player. And he says, no, because Lewis is this the end of the show. The whole cast is on stage and he's out there with his big horn and everything. So anyway, it ended up I played the longest hangover, greasiest G I've ever played in my life. And they're going perfect, you know. So um, it, but it, again, it took those three different people, the arranger, the, the, the producer and, and then this show director to get this thing the way they wanted it another uh thing in that show was that you know we're just looking at music and it says uh all right ad lib here and then at uh, at two before letter d uh, uh forte okay so we doing that and the, the, again the show director says well guys 
right there too before letter D is when the the doors open up and they're going into this party and the crowd's in there and you guys are already noodling along, like, you know, behind the doors. And then the doors open up into this giant Dixieland party. Oh, okay. Cause it doesn't say that. It just has the, the court changes on there. So, so we had to just go, you know, and just had to go for it. Right. It, uh, totally. There was nothing indicating that on the music, but we needed the show director for us to do what he needed to make that happen. This was so much fun to, to be asked to provide these things and then, you know, and have them be very, you know, pleased with it afterwards. So that's a, a, a studio thing that was tremendously rewarding uh, because we got it right. Um, you know, stage stuff is always rewarding when, when you, when you play great and then, you know, people show by their applause. That's, there's nothing, I, I like live performing. And uh, to me, there's nothing better because that's kind of why we do it. Um, to, to, to get that, you know, response to play something and then get the response from people that they, they really appreciated what you did or they felt what you did. Um, uh, and then um, uh, the, uh, the the thing I like about teaching uh, with trumpet is when a student what what we tell a student hits home and they get it and they sometimes they get it more than anything we anticipated as as uh, you know, directing them so that's always rewarding when you know I had a uh, a student who got a full scholarship to uh, Juilliard, everything, you know, his, his family would never have been able to do that. But when he called me, he goes, man, I got a, a free ride to Juilliard. And I just told him, I said, but man, practice, don't get any bad habits and don't get any ballerinas pregnant because they're, they're counting on you to, <laughs> to if they're giving you this, they, they want to say, Oh, him. He's one of us. His name is Enrique Sanchez. He's he's just doing a lot of touring and stuff now and started doing some recording in L.A. But Enrique made them proud. And then they could go, oh, Enrique Sanchez, he's one of ours. He's Juilliard, uh, you know, uh, jazz studies program. So the, the, those these are all rewards in, in different ways. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's the great thing is that, um, you know, it. I think music, you know, is if you have the bug for music. I mean, if if this is something that you love and, and that you have an act uh, an affinity for, um, there are so many ways that you can express that. It's not just uh, you know I have to I have to land a gig with a symphony or that I have to be a professor somewhere. There's so many different aspects of the music industry that you can be a part of uh, that allows you to contribute to the the ongoing uh evolution of music that allows you to make an impact um so you don't have to just limit yourself um and like me i just i like doing as many things as possible so that's why i love performing i love recording i love producing yeah so anything i i think that you know allowing yourself to be open to the options that are there uh that's kind of crucial to to people's development and you even you, you had your own record label uh is that the, I the yeah. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I started my own label because uh, I wanted to record things I wanted to record. And, um, you know, when I started that, uh, it was 1992. Um, you know, if you went to one of the major jazz labels and, or sent them your, you know, uh, mixes and stuff, they didn't really, they weren't really interested. So I thought, well, I can do this myself if I, uh, I, I had a following um, so I, I worked on that and that's obviously every young player knows that now, you know, you, you've got, uh, Instagram following or, uh, Facebook or WhatsApp and whatever the, the media you use, you have a following, uh, that's your key to success. And I love that technology has, has flattened the line. Now, you know, you used to have to be, you know, Clark Terry or something to, to, or Miles Davis or, uh, you know, Al Hurt or something to, to get a record label interested in you. Now, all you need is your fans. And the funny thing is, if you have enough fans, somebody looks and goes, well, this person has 1.2 million followers. The label is going to go, you know, we better, we better see if uh, Jose wants to be a part of our label because you come, you know, uh, pre, uh, uh, you know, programmed for, what they're looking for so um you know i can put one of my videos up just as quick as garth brooks can put one of his up you know so the the playing field's leveled now which i love that and um uh and and young people know that too one of the things that i that bugs me though and this was really during the during the pandemic and it's part of our embrace of technology now is that you know People still, we still all wanted to play and produce things and, and make music and everything. It's kind of hard to not do that. So, uh, so I would start to see these, um, uh, what I call postage stamp big bands. You see a big band and it's a cool uh, concept um, where everybody would just play their part and send it in. But the only thing is there's no mistakes on anything I see anymore. Now, we all make mistakes, man. And I have yet to, there's a few people that'll put stuff on Instagram. that has got some chips here and there or something that they cacked or airballed. But are we all really as perfect as I see on social media? I don't think so. So it, I think that creates a, a, an environment where you're not good enough. If I watch a thousand trumpet players on Instagram this afternoon, how many clams will I hear? And then how, how am I going to compare with that? How's Charlie Bertini going to possibly compare to that? I can't. I can't play through a, 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 an etude without chipping something. and uh, Or maybe I do. But then, oh, let me just do it over until I get it right. But I, I'm not really that perfect player. And neither is anybody else. You know, So that, to me, creates an environment. That's not real. And that puts pressure on us. Just like that, you know, you read about all the uh, 
young, especially girls who are trying to look beautiful and everything because everything they see is this level of beauty that's unattainable. So I'm wondering about that for musicians as well. Anyway, those postage stamp things, it was a great idea. And we couldn't get together. We couldn't, you know, congregate and make a recording. So people did it that way. But I, I, I wonder if our technology is getting in the way of, you know, our ability to just work hard at what we do and, and not edit what we do. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's real interesting because, you know, uh, I remember the first time I was in the, in the studio, the first time I was in the studio, I mean, that back, back in the seventies, uh, you know, it was two inch tape and, and, uh, it was, you know, the razor blade and, and slice mm -hmm. and, and, and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, then I remember the first time I was in the studio where the engineer was using, uh, auto tune and it was like, it was a completely different thing, you know, and it was nice in that case, because it was like, Oh, okay. Well, you know, that, that F was just, I mean, after playing it six times, it, I still couldn't just kind of get it super dialed in like, okay, I can, I can fix that, you know, and just kind of pitched it up a little bit. Okay. Boom. So I didn't have to, you know, kill myself, yeah. but you know, but then you, you start to see people that, that instead of using that as, something to make these minor corrections where everything is just so overly processed and so overly corrected that it, and particularly like with vocalists where you don't hear any of the nuance, uh, you know, you're talking about people that, you know, being perfect, that it's too sterile, you know, there's, there's no vibrato, there's no, uh, and especially if you're talking about things like doing jazz and blues and, and I mean, even like, you know, rock and roll and, and, and funk and stuff like that, there's, there's gotta be a realness to it. And that realness comes from the imperfections and what we do as opposed to the perfections. So I mean, when you're talking about technology and its place, um, you know, uh, what, what are your thoughts on using, uh, using technology and, and how do you, how do you straddle that line of using it to its best advantage uh, to make the product, uh, you know, the final package, as opposed to trying to use it to mitigate like uh, the lack of work that was done uh, previously? Mm -hmm. um, well, we have all these tools now uh, and, and plugins and all these other things. And that's great that we have them, but that doesn't mean you have to use them all. So I'm all for, uh, like we were talking earlier, mic placement. Well, instead of making the trumpet fatter, why don't you stop EQing it and move the microphone a little closer, move it an inch closer and a trumpet will sound fatter. I mean, don't do it later, do it now. Get the truth in performance, which is which is one one of the things Barbara Streisand talked about. It's truth in performance. So you can have a perfect recording that sounds amazing, perfect, everything's perfect. And like you said, it's sterile. But then somebody can play you a cassette of some guy doing the same thing. And the cassette's a cassette, right? But it moves you because you hear the truth in performance. And so with the technology. My suggestion is do not take out the truth in performance. If you're taking it out, maybe you're going to fix a little this, fix this here. When you start repairing everything, it's a different product. And, it's, and, and we lose that because 
we're we're living breathing people and with emotions and stuff and what what you just mentioned are the things that make it emotional and when you take that out it goes away the emotion goes away sure it's a great arrangement oh it's perfect playing it's this and that and everything else every the balance of all the instruments great but the you know what happened to the truth in performance so that's what i try to make sure doesn't get done is is taking that out you can mix something to death and mix the life right out of it um you know i i i'm still a big fan of uh, just sitting in my uh, office and turning everything off and listening to music because we inundated with our phones and everything else i i love my phone i love everything about it but there's time to turn it all off and put on uh you know a ella fitzgerald record there was no auto-tune there's no auto-tune in Billie Holiday. There's no auto-tune in old Doc Severinsen records. You know, put those on and get goosebumps and know why you're getting them. There was no Melodyne. There's no auto-tune. Uh, the mix was whatever the mix was. That's it. You know, uh, so to me, my effort when I produce is to try to get that truth in performance or at least leave it in there, whatever's there. Yeah. On my YouTube channel, uh, I've posted a lot of things that, of artists on my channel and myself. Uh, it's Apple Jazz 3410 is, is my channel. And so everything on there, I feel, has the truth in performance. Could I have fixed some of it I, or more of it? Yes. Did I fix some of it? Yeah. Some especially balances and stuff. But otherwise, it's really important that we make that music musical connection it's not just something you can dance to you know at least for us as as wind instrument players you know if you're making a a, a pop track and stuff maybe your your priorities are going to be different and you fix everything you possibly can to make it a sellable pop song but for what we do it's got to be truth and performance i love that truth and performance I, yeah yeah I, that that might be my next t-shirt Truth of performance, right there. Yeah, okay, I, it's uh, it's it's totally true. That's what moves us. Yeah, cool. All right, Charlie. Well, I've got like three uh, segments that we need to get through. These are kind of my standard segments. Uh, so let's let's get going on that, so we can uh, let you get on to the rest of your day. Okay. Uh, the first one, and this is a great one, great segue actually. Uh, this uh, first segment is called Sound Off. It's brought to us by uh, my good friend Michael Barkley of Barkley Microphones. There's a Barkley microphone right there. Uh, and uh, this is about concepts of sound. So uh, let, let's kind of maybe keep riffing on, uh, as you just touched on, like studios uh, concepts of sound. Um, so what are some of the things, you already talked about like mic placements, what are some of the other things that we can do to make sure that we're maximizing uh, and getting the truth of performance of our trumpet sound, making that trumpet sound like it's a real trumpet. Um, we all have, we each have a preconceived idea in our heads of what we should sound like. That uh, preconceived idea came from whatever influences we have, whether it was Chet Baker or Maynard Ferguson, it's a, a preconceived idea in our head, and we can't sound like anybody else. We're going to sound like ourselves. So it's very important that we find equipment that helps us get 
that preconceived sound that's in our head. So guys who are searching, 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 sometimes you're looking for a horn or a mouthpiece or something that, that can do this or can do that, but it's still our goal is to get that preconceived sound, whatever that is. So my suggestion is to find whatever uh, equipment helps you get your preconceived sound as efficiently and quickly as possible with as much accuracy as you can. So and sometimes your sound for one thing is different for something else. When I play piccolo trumpet, I want to sound like so-and-so. When I play flugelhorn, I want to sound like this person. When I play lead trumpet, I want to sound like this. When I play jazz, I want to sound like that. Do I have to have five different horns for that? Well, sometimes you do because you need a flugelhorn and a pick and so on. But um, uh, find the equipment that helps you get that sound and then work on your sound. And by the way, that sound can change over time as our influences change. Yeah. Pretty simple, I guess. So. Okay. Well, great. And, and, yet, and what, what, you, what you've done is, is already started to move into our next segment, which is called uh, Geared Up. And Geared Up is brought to us by Venture Mouthpieces Venture, where technology, design, and craftsmanship intersect. Use the code TrumpetGurus21 at checkout and save 10% on your order. And so this is about gear, and you already started to talk about that a little bit, um, that, you know, the gear does play a role, maybe not as much of a role as some people tend to think that it does. But, uh, you know, so when you're talking about finding the right gear for the job, um, it, it's an experimental process. So what are some of the ways that you suggest people go about uh, determining what gear they might need or want to utilize to make their job that much easier. Okay, this uh, the answer to your question is is a little complicated because things have changed over the years. So uh, when you and I were kids, you went and bought a box Stradivarius trumpet. You wanted to get a good sound, you needed a box Strad. Well, there wasn't a lot of competition back then, and I think box still is the the biggest selling trumpet um but then yamaha came along uh created they have fabulous research and development so they they would actually ask artists hey try this horn and would tell me what you think and then they would actually listen to those trumpet players and make changes and stuff and then they would come up with this one this one this one whatever different flavors you know and uh, bach always had different uh horns based basically on the the bell contours and whether they were standard or lightweight uh regular lead pipe reverse lead pipe those are the choices now uh it's so it's gone from some of the 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 big horn companies to a lot of handmade horns and so on so this now becomes actually more of a challenge because there's more choices where do you go to try out horns now you know, you might have a friend that's got such and such handmade horn. Uh, well, let me try that. But then that person had that horn made for them. That doesn't mean that that's right for you. But that horn company could make a custom horn for you. But you'd have to go visit them and have the money to do it and everything else. So it's uh, it's gotten very personalized, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's a complicated thing. And you also need money. So what, let's say you spend... I don't know, $4,500 having a trumpet made just for you. And that's great through college. And then uh, you get a symphony job and that's not the right sound. 
So now you, you've got to go through this process again. So, uh, but we're all not strangers to the fact that we try different horns and play this for a while and then play that for a while. And so, I mean, when I was a kid, probably you too, Doc Severson was a Getson guy, the Getson Eterna 900, I think. And then I wanted one of those so bad because Doc Severson was my hero and uh, my parents couldn't afford that. So there's no way this just wasn't going to happen. You know, my, uh, my uncle, who was a professional musician, he was a sax player. He went to uh, New York and he bought a box Strad and my parents told me it about broke him. It was $289 for that box Strad in the mid sixties. I think it was just after they moved to Elkhart, but I had a professional horn that I could take with me to all through high school to college. If I got a symphony gig or my circus gig, it worked for anything. So uh, I'm not promoting box stress, but I'm just saying that this was a different time. So um, uh, same thing with mouthpieces. Now, you know, you used to just go get a pretty much a Bach mouthpiece or a Parduba double cup or something. There weren't a lot of choices. Uh, I happen to be a, a Warburton fan. I've been playing Warburton mouthpieces since the mid eighties. And I like them because they're, you can pick something that's comfortable for your face. Then you can interchange backboards. So now I can go from a lead trumpet position with the same top and put a different backboard in and get that Chet Baker kind of sound without all the edge and everything to it. So I, I, I like that modular thing, but a lot of companies make that now too. So uh, what I would recommend is same thing, find what works for you as efficiently as possible for you to get that sound. And like I said, your sound might be different because, oh, I just got a job with a Houston Symphony. Well, I, I can't sound like I sounded at North Texas State in the in the one o'clock band, you know. So um, you've got to find what works for you for the job you're doing and then do it as efficiently as possible. Yeah. Good stuff, man. Good stuff. Yeah. And I, I, I remember my, my first pro horn, um, was, I think maybe, uh, it was 500 bucks. Yeah. It was, mm -hmm. it was a ST302, a Holton MF horn. So, uh -huh. yeah. 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 And, uh, yeah, now it's like $500 for a horn. Something's got to be seriously wrong with it. So. Yeah. And the valves won't work in a month. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I go through this with parents a lot, Jose, is that, well, I want to buy Johnny a, a trumpet. He's doing really well. He's uh, going into 10th grade next year and I can spend, uh, I want to spend uh, $1,200 and there's an intermediate model, such and such. I'm going to go into labels and stuff, but uh, intermediate model, shiny, brand new silver horn. And I said, no, don't, don't get that. I said, let me find you a used Zeno for $1,200 or a used box Strad for $1,200. And then that way, little Johnny can take it. Same thing. Because unfortunately, when you get to college, you're going to get judged a lot more than you are in high school. So if you show up for brass choir with a uh, student model, such and such, uh, even the band director is going to go, what? You're going to play on that? I mean, it's not fair because if you sound good, you sound good. Yeah. But I'm sorry, man, you know, take something of value that, and the other thing about for parents is about, you know, buying a, a good horn, reputable horn is that when 
your kid decides to be, go into oceanography instead of music, you're going to sell that horn and get what you paid for it, you know? So yeah. uh, that's, that's another thing for parents who, who don't know. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. All right. Well, we got one final segment uh, and uh, this is, this is a fun one. Uh, and uh, this is brought to us by Robinson's Remedies, uh, rapid relief for your sore and tired chops. This is called the Robinson's Remedy Rapid Fire Round. It's a series of questions that kind of go all over the place. Some will be about music, some won't. <laughs> so I just need your quickest response. Okay. Are you ready, Charlie? I guess so, yeah. Okay, here we go. First question. Who's the biggest influence on your life that is not a trumpet player? Um. Uh, it's going to have to be my mom. All right. What's your favorite book? Well, that's, that's tough too. Uh, I see one in front of you. Uh, I have a book called earth secrets and it's, uh, it's not published anymore, but I, Frank green wanted a copy of it. So I actually typed it all out and sent it to him. It's called earth secrets. And it's just a lot of short little things, very metaphysical, um, things to think about. Okay, cool. Uh, maybe I can get a copy of that too. Uh, what is the worst movie you've ever seen? Worst movie I've ever seen. Jeez, I don't. I don't remember because I block out dumb stuff like that. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll go to the next one. Um, if you weren't a trumpet player, what would you want to be? Oh, that's easy. I I, I really like uh, graphic arts. And so uh, it's funny because my dad uh, was an engineer and he knew I had really good skills at you know, like making posters and stuff like that. And of course, now with the Photoshop and all kinds of stuff, I, I love doing that. But he always kept trying to get me to be in the in the graph, be a graphic artist, because I think he wondered what I want to be when I grow up. So, yeah, graphic arts. All right. Cool. Uh, what's your favorite drink? That has changed over the years. And I don't drink it anymore, but my favorite drink is is uh, vodka with lime juice, a gimlet. Yeah, absolutely. All right, um, you can have a dinner party, and uh, at this dinner party, you can invite any three living people. We'll, we'll exclude, you know, the, the the usual suspects, family and and, and friends, all like that. But mm -hmm. if you could have any three people in the world there to have a discussion with you, who would you want to? Invite. Can they be? Can they be trumpet players? They can be trumpet players. They can be athletes, actors. Yeah. No, they would be trumpet players. So we'd have something to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it would uh, definitely be my friend Wayne Bergeron would be there, and then uh, my crusty uh, friend who I love very much, Warren Vache, and um, then I'd have somebody younger, probably maybe uh, Tyler Yeager. Yeah. Somebody younger. So we could all talk trumpet and get three totally different, uh, well, four, because I'd be there. And and it would be how much we agree upon, too. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just just uh, keep Tyler away from the, uh, from, from the hard stuff. He, oh, yeah. Well, that's his job. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've had some some good hangs with Tyler. Oh, okay. And Matter, too. So, uh same thing. You're you have this dinner party, so you, you're going to have you and Tyler and, and Wayne and Warren there. Uh, but you've got three additional seats at the table, and you could have any three people from history. 
Um, can they be trumpet players or not? <laughs> it could be anybody you want. Any three people. Who would you? Yeah. Any any three people that ever lived. Who would you want to have there? Oh boy, that's a that's such a wide question. Um, uh, I think George McGovern, who I've I've read all his books, and uh, uh, he's he's also a jazz lover, so uh, uh, he would be great to have there. Um, Mm, mm, mm. How about uh, uh, a great singer, Frank Sinatra? All right. And uh, I have somebody else, maybe a producer, Alan Sides, recording engineer. Oh, man. And we okay. still all have something in common to talk about. So. Exactly. That sounds awesome. All right. Next question for you Lacquer, plated, or raw? Mm. Um, not raw. Uh, my first horn was lacquered and stuff. I I always wanted a shiny silver trumpet when I was a kid. So my first horn was lacquered. I took it to Giardinelli's uh, when we were uh, uh, when I was with the circus in early seventies. To uh, we were we were had a two week stand, and so I took it to Giardinelli's and because I wanted it silver plated. And um, they said, you pick it up in two weeks on your way out of town. Next place to go in Virginia. Went to pick it up. The guy's really proud of it. Opens it up. Takes the velvet thing down. Lacquered. They overhauled it. They lacquered it again. And I must have, I didn't cry, but I must have looked like it. And he goes, what's wrong? I, I said, it's supposed to be silver. It's supposed to be silver. I was probably 19 years old. And so he looks at the thing and goes, Oh, uh, we'll take care of it. We'll, we'll have it for you in three days. I said, I'll be in Virginia and South Carolina and stuff in three days. So uh, that made me want a silver trumpet so bad after that. So I've always had a silver trumpet. And uh, I do have a gold trumpet, too. I play Lawler trumpets, going back to that whole handmade thing. So, uh, but, and, but I always like the King Silver Flare because it had gold inside the belt. So all my horns, when I have them made now, and I have a gold wash inside the bell. And so that's, uh, for, for me, that's it. And, uh, and people go, Charlie, do you find that the gold makes a, you know, it gives it a little richer, warmer sound? I go, no, I did it because it looks cool. I don't know if it makes any, so I, I don't care about this stuff. I just like silver trumpets. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you on that. Uh-huh. Great. Uh, next question. What's your favorite quote? Uh, you know, uh, there was one from Richard Bach. Uh, uh, it's about fear. I, 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 I don't remember what it is, but it's, um, I know it's about fear that we, we make up fear and we don't need to do that. So, uh, uh, there's, but I can't think of the actual wording, but it's from Jonathan Livingston Seagull. Uh, and uh, it's, it's about fear and how it's completely unnecessary and that we made it up. So, yeah, your fear is yours, mine's mine, and they aren't real. Okay. Good. Uh, next question for you. You could be granted one superpower. What would you want it to be? 
<laughs> These are tough questions. Uh, one superpower, what would I want it to be? I, I would just like to not have to work out anymore. <laughs> so what about just having optimum health all the time? So right. that, that would, I don't know if that's a superpower. It certainly seems like one to me based on the walking and the gym and the diet and all the stuff I have to do to have good health. So Yeah, yeah, that, that would be a great one. All right. Um, what aspect of trumpet playing do you find to be the most overrated? I, I'm not sure I totally understand that, Jose. You mean um, like playing loud or something like that? You mean that? Yeah. What 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 thing do you think people people focus on more? Or put more weight on than than maybe needs to be. Yeah, I I I have to say, based on all the students I've had, is range. Is range. I gotta get I gotta get higher notes and stuff. So it's a big thing. And certainly, I can show anybody how to play higher notes. How much work do you want to do to do it? I'd like to play higher notes, but I know how much work I'd have to do to be able to do it. And I'm not willing to invest my time in that. I'd rather invest my practice time in a lot of other things other than range. And then if you, just like an athlete, if we invest that time in range, as soon as you stop investing that time, the range goes away. So um, how bad do you want this? And it's, everybody wants it, but then they, when you tell them what they got to do, they go, oh, all right, never mind. I'll work on my my Herbert L. Clark tonguing instead, you know, so something that's going to benefit you more. Than new mouthpiece. Yeah. <laughs> Say that again. I'll buy a new mouthpiece. There. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, and the, the second part of that question is what aspect of trumpet playing do you think is the most underrated? It, your sound, sound underrated. It's like, uh, I, uh, when somebody plays something for me, I'll say, is that your, is that how you want to sound? Is that your best sound? Oh, um, no, maybe not. Or play it with your best sound and they get a better sound. I said, okay, that first sound, you just practiced that. If you put this thing on your face and play something, you're practicing that. So you just practiced that mediocre sound instead of that beautiful sound you just did. Why don't you just practice the beautiful sound? So I don't think, I know our sound is our signature. When you hear, uh, uh, Miles Davis, Chet Baker, Herb Alpert, uh, uh, Wayne Bergeron, you know who it is. In an instant, you know that sound. And so um, our sound is our signature. So you should be working on your sound. So somebody goes, oh, I know who that is. That's such and such. You know, that's your sound. It's, it's you know, what are they going to say about you? Cool. All right. Uh, you can go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice about music, what would it be? Mm. Jeez, I've had so much, so, such a great experience. I would think, uh, you know, I never had any teachers. So I got out of high school, joined the circus, playing second trumpet, learned everything I learned by just trying and failing or trying and succeeding, but I, I never had a teacher. The first professional lesson I ever had was when William Adam came to Orlando uh, for a, a trumpet conference that was that was uh, put on by um, 
John Almeida, uh, who was great at organizing things like this and also a great trumpet player and teacher. So Almeida brought uh, Bill Adam to town and you could sign up, pre-sign up for a lesson. So I, I got a lesson with him and I was so excited because he's a legend, you know? So I, um, uh, it was my, I realized it's my first time I had a lesson from any, anybody other than my high school band director. So I wish I had taken more lessons because I might've learned things quicker, faster. Same thing I was talking about being more efficient. Why are you doing that, Charlie? Oh, I don't know. Oh, why don't you try this instead? I didn't have any of that. So okay. more, more teachers, I think. More teachers. All right. Uh, and you're going to give your younger self one piece of advice about life. Oh, don't, don't take it too seriously. You, you have to have fun. You know, I, we, we started playing music because it's fun. And that's another thing. But when, when I'm talking to professionals and stuff and they're this and stressed about this and that and the other thing and complaining, I said, man, we started music because it was fun. And then we started getting paid to have fun. So make sure you're having fun. I, I, I've always said this when, you know, I'm 70 years old. And uh, when I found out in ninth grade, people would give me money to play the trumpet. I thought, because I love playing trumpet and they'll give me money too. I'm going to ride this thing out and see how long I can play trumpet and keep getting money. So that's, that's my, my, my life is very, very successful uh, because of that attitude. And uh, I encourage anybody, don't just have to be trumpet players, whatever you love doing, find a way to get paid for it and, and you'll have a happy life. Absolutely. With you 100% on that. All right, Charlie, here's your final question. What do you want your legacy to be? Well, it's, it's pretty much what my, my, reputation would be now and i think that's um when when you show up to play you want to be the best player you could be so that uh everybody else around you wants to play well too wants to be on that side of things so i try to always do that i try to always play the best of my ability whatever that is and hopefully that influences uh, people around me so that we all show up to, to do a great job because that's when we're going to make the most music. Yeah. All right. Well, very cool. Yeah. Nothing like being that inspiration. Yeah. Setting mm -hmm. the model. Well, I've sat next to people who were that for me. So yeah. if I can be that for somebody else, uh, then, then I think that's, uh, that's a, something I can be really proud of. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, it's, it's, it's more than music too, you know, what, regardless of whether you're a trumpet player or a, uh, you know, you're, you're laying bricks somewhere, you know, you can inspire people to, to bring their best game. So I, I love that, man. All right. So Charlie, man, this has been great. It's been great getting to know you. Everything that Tyler said about you, uh, was absolutely incorrect. Uh, you are, a great person. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, th this has been really fantastic. And, and I hope that one day, uh, maybe next time I get down to Orlando, uh, we can, we can get together and, and, uh, uh, continue our conversations uh, over uh, something that you're going to fix for me on the grill. So. I'd love that. I'd love all of that. Yeah. Maybe some duets in there too, someplace. Oh, uh, I, I wouldn't want to torture you like that, but 
Uh, I, no, seriously, man, I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, if you want to find out more about Charlie, definitely uh, follow the links in the show notes uh, to his uh, website and to uh, his YouTube channel. And yeah, the, he's got some great stuff going on. And um, yeah, I definitely suggest that that you check out uh, what Charlie's doing. And, and uh, he's a good guy. So thanks for joining us for this episode of The Hang. And as always, folks, we make sure you like, subscribe, share this uh, with other people. If you have a suggestion for a future guest or a topic you'd like me to cover, uh, hit me up uh, and uh, I'll do my best to get it happening. So until the next time, peace and slide grease. We out. Thanks for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating deeper connections through our mutual love of music and the trumpet life. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also like and share this episode with a friend. We want to see The Hang grow for show. Please support our sponsors and consider becoming a personal supporter of this podcast as well. Remember, for less than the price of a bottle of valve oil a month, you can keep this podcast moving smoothly. The Trumpet Guru's Hang is recorded at the Candy Factory, a co-working space and social club located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Jose Johnson is the executive producer. Post-production editing is by Mitch Bowers. Our opening theme song was composed and performed by Lexi Signor. And our closing theme music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. Incidental music is by Ethan Swayze and Jose Johnson. Graphic design by Ann Kirby of The Sweet Corps. The Trumpet Guru's Hang podcast is produced in collaboration with the So Good Lancaster Media Group. Mm-hmm.